0: Amen. I pray that that's your your certainty this morning. That you know that the blood of Jesus was for you. If that's not your certainty, I pray that by the end of this sermon, that that would be your certainty, that you know that the blood of Jesus was for you. How do you know it? How can you know that for certain? Well, you can't know for certain because it was your parents' certainty the blood of Jesus was for them. You can't know it because deep inside you just feel it. You know for certain that the blood of Jesus Christ was for you by the only source of certain truth in the world, the Bible. Amen. It is the, 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 the foundation for our certain trust and truth is found in God's word. And so friends, that's why the bulk of our services every single Sunday, Lord willing, every single time we meet is to look at the foundation, the bedrock of God's word, and to call ourselves to keep believing it. We're calling others to keep believing it is why we've spent the better part of four years now in Matthew's gospel, section by section, working through this book, seeing what it says, because we believe the Bible to be true, and we believe we need all of it. In other words, that's why we do what's called expositional preaching. We just open up the Bible We try to explain what the text says after we read it, right? And then we seek to apply it to our lives. It's a rather simple approach, but it has phenomenal effects. We trust that the simple reading, explanation, expounding, and application of God's word builds us up, gives us faith, and causes us to keep believing that we might know for certain what Jesus did was for us. I pray that the Lord would do that even this morning through his word. Kids, I pray the Lord would do that through the preaching of his word for you. And so one of the things we've tried to do is, is to make it really easy for you to follow, easier for you to follow somebody like me, right? Which I don't think is super easy, All right? So if you haven't gotten one already, there's some kids' sermon note sheets out there in the breezeway or there's some out in the back. Kids, if you look at these. And I am talking to kids here. So y'all can look at me if you want or You can act like you're normie. But I I know some of it is going in. If you look at these kids, just try to, as I'm going along, try to fill out some of these things. So so one of the questions is who is speaking. Right. So I'm speaking. All right. Pastor Omar, Omar, whatever you want to call me. Right. And you can write down the words you don't know. You can write down what you're learning from this passage. So kids, try to figure, feel this out as you go. Even bigger kids. I'm not going to put an age limit on that. Feel free to use this sheet. And kids, it's even a little spot here for you to draw a picture of what you think this passage is saying. So I think there's one really vivid illustration in this passage that'll be easy to draw. So feel free to use colored markers, pencils to, to, to fill this out. And one way to use this would be to share it with your parents this afternoon or evening and talk about the sermon, right? So maybe that will be a fun way to follow along in the sermon, but I do want you to follow along. I trust that you as a four or six or eight year old can understand God's word It is simple enough for a child to understand. And I want our six and seven and 10 and 12 year olds and 16 and 18 year olds to believe the Bible and to trust in Jesus today. Kids can be saved. Kids are saved the same way parents are saved through the preaching of God's word. All right. And so pay attention and listen. Enough introduction. Let's turn to God's word which will be the best part of this sermon. Matthew chapter 26, this morning we'll look at verses uh, 47 through 75 as we close out Matthew chapter 26, it's the final days of Jesus' life. It's Thursday night, late Thursday night is the setting of our passage in just a few hours on Monday, oh, on Friday, Jesus will be crucified. So we pick up our passage, with Jesus just leaving the Garden of Gethsemane or still in the Garden of Gethsemane as people come to arrest him. Matthew 26, starting at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. He came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against me as as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples left and fled then those who had seized jesus led him to caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered and peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and and said to the bystanders, this man was was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you would deny me three times. And he went out and wept. Bitterly. So here's what I think is the main point of this weighty passage. Jesus placed his life into the hands of sinners to save sinners like us. Jesus placed his life into the hands of sinners to save sinners like us. In this passage, we see Jesus again willingly carrying out God's plan to go to the cross to save us. Even when when there seemed to be other last ditch options to do something else, to, to change the course of things, Jesus showed a willingness to be about the Father's business. He didn't take options that you and I would have taken to escape. Jesus refused to take the escape route. As we walk through this text, we see three scenes unfold. You see Jesus in the garden at his arrest in verses 47 through 56. We see Jesus before the high priest Caiaphas and the religious leaders in verses 57 through 68 for a trial. And then you see Peter in the courtyard for his own sort of trial in verses 69 through 75. And from those three scenes, I want us to focus on two Pictures of Jesus we see in contrast to the characters in this passage, in contrast to us. Point number one, Jesus is submissive where we are subversive. Jesus is submissive where we are subversive. We see that in verses 47 through 56. And point number two, we see Jesus is courageous where we are cowards. We said in verses 57 through 75, Jesus is courageous where we are cowards. In this text, we see Jesus act opposite than us for us. He does counter to what we would do for our sakes. Point number one, Jesus is submissive where we are subversive. Uh, To subvert means to rebel against, to undermine, to seek to overthrow something, whether it's some sort of rule or some sort of plan. And in these first set of verses here, we see different people in different ways try to subvert, try to overthrow God's plans. While contrastly, we see Jesus submit to God's plan. The passage starts off with Judas coming on the scene. His name is almost synonymous with subversion. I mean, he first came into prominent view back earlier in chapter 26, when, uh, in chapter 26, when verse 14 tells us that he went to the chief priest and negotiated to, to betray Jesus, to give Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver. And notice how Matthew means to highlight the depth of Judas's treachery, both in verse 14. And here in verse 47, he notes that Judas was one of the 12. There were many people that followed Jesus, many people who trusted in his message and even who provided for him. But only 12 that he specially chose, only 12 that he specially commissioned to carry out his gospel and be his apostles and to to heal and to teach, only 12 that he spent the bulk of his time with pouring into them, instructing them, encouraging them. And now one of the 12 was seeking to kill him. Now, I wonder if you you notice how how, how this passage kind of flies in the face of worldly wisdom. I mean, worldly wisdom tells you that to protect yourself from getting hurt, you just got to keep a tight circle. Well, friends, even those in a tight circle can turn on you. Even people in a small church like ours can turn on each other, can turn from the Lord. Friends, we must not read the story of Judas and simply despise him. We must read the story of Judas and make sure that we are not him. Make sure that we do not drift and become like him. One of the ways we do that is by following Jesus' commands to his disciples in the garden last week to be watchful, to be spiritually vigilant, and to be prayerful. Those are not just personal disciplines. Jesus gave those instructions to the group of three last week together. Saints, says, you need other believers to help you be watchful. To help see things in your life that might be signs of drifting that you can't see yourself. You need other saints with you to help you pray and stay in the Lord. That's one reason why we have a corporate prayer service. So you should come this evening to our prayer service to pray with your brothers and your sisters. You need prayer and you need prayer with other people you know sometimes you you see someone's life explode someone totally do something drastic and leave the faith and you're like how could that be not every time but oftentimes you can trace the trail and find a neglect of the normal means of grace come to church every week prayer service what's the use of that i got better things to do friends it's not a guilt trip that is trying to goad you into using all the means the Lord has given you to keep you in the faith, to keep you from turning away from the Lord, to keep us from becoming Judases, people who oppose God and who oppose God's plans. But you might say, well, it was God's plan to put Jesus to death. And so Judas wasn't really against or subverting God's plan but was simply a part in accomplishing it. Well, yes, Jesus' death was absolutely, ultimately part of God's plan. But Judas should not have been part of the plan. As Jesus said a few weeks ago, up in verse 24 in this chapter, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas wanted none of Jesus' rule over his life. And so he sinfully sought to wreck Jesus. He was no innocent victim swept up in God's sovereign scheme. He was a willing participant, an eager actor. I mean, notice that here in verses 47 through 49. Judas comes leading a great crowd of soldiers and officers from the chief priests armed with swords and clubs. Uh, He had inside access of where Jesus would be. And he takes this crowd right up to Jesus to to capture him. And before getting there, he thoughtfully orchestrated how he was going to identify Jesus to them to capture them. I mean, it was late at night. And Jesus wasn't very well known to every single person in Jerusalem. And if you read the gospels, most of his ministry was centered in Capernaum. That was his kind of base. He'd visit Jerusalem, but not enough so that every single soldier would know exactly what Jesus would look like. Uh, they had arrest orders, but they wouldn't know deep at night exactly who Jesus was. But no worries, Judas had hatched a plan. Verse 48 says that he'd given them a sign. The one I kiss is the man. Sees him a kiss was and still is a common expression of affection among middle eastern people so it's striking that judas chose this sign as a marker that he chose this symbol of intimacy and genuine love and care and he turned it into into a tool to destroy jesus what hypocrisy what evil Verse 49 says, Judas came up to Jesus saying, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. But it was pretend affection, a show of love just to show the soldiers who to grab. But Judas does not fool Jesus. He comes with a kiss, but Jesus knows what he's there for. But notice Jesus doesn't plead with Judas to reconsider his actions. He he doesn't try to take him on a trip down memory lane to try to rekindle his affections and reorient his heart. He doesn't say, Judas, remember the time when? I mean, you've seen the scene in movies where one friend turns on the other and and the friend in danger uh, conjures up every single shared emotion and shared bit of history to try to slow that friend from doing evil. Like, bro, we're supposed to be brothers. I I grew up with you. I, I did all these things with you. And though Jesus has no interest in changing Judas's mind because Jesus has already made up his mind to do his father's will to go to the cross, to die for our sins. So he says in verse 50, friend do what you came to do. I'll it is absolutely true that God often restrains people from the evil that they would do. It's one of the constant, kind of constant prayer requests here that we pray for, that the Lord would restrain us from doing the evil that we would naturally do, that he would restrain our children from doing the evil that they would do, that he'd restrain people in our community from doing the evil that they would do. In his mercy, God often does that. He restrains people from doing evil. But how horrible it is For the Lord to allow you to go along with your evil desires, with your evil schemes. I want to have you consider that in your own life. That when you carry out your sinful wishes, that you're not sneakily getting away with it. Nor is there some kind of tacit approval because you were able to do what you wanted to do. Actually, it's more dangerous that you are able to freely pursue sin that you're able to freely and full-heartedly pursue the sin that God hates and will send you to hell for. Friends, there comes a time when subversion of God's plans, rebellion against his plans for you, seeking to overthrow his rule is not met with rejection or pushback, but is met with seeming allowance. And that's the most dangerous time. The Removal of restraints is an act of God's judgments. But see here, even as Jesus allows Judas to do what he wants to do, to rebel against the Lord, he himself is all about doing God's will, submitting to God's plan. Jesus does not resist, but rather gives his life into the hands of his betrayer. So with a kiss, the soldiers come and grab Jesus. And the disciples grab their swords. Or more accurately, one disciple grabs his sword. Look at verse 51. In the midst of the officers arresting Jesus, we read, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John's Gospel identifies this daring disciple as, you guessed it, Peter. (laughs) Peter always bought that smoke. (laughs) Well, seemingly, we'll see. He sees his Savior being arrested and he protests by force. No, this is not going down on my watch, Peter says. Right? He he says it by his actions. He's like, no, we're not having that. Peter seems bold here. His actions seem commendable. But really, Peter is on the same plane as Judas. He's opposed to God's plans too. Especially as that plan involves his Savior, his supposed Messiah, suffering. He fights against that idea with all his being. I mean, re- remember back in chapter 16 when Jesus first predicted his suffering and death. He said there in, in chapter 16 that, that he would suffer many things from the elders and from the chief priests and from the scribes, and that he'd be killed and on the third day be raised. That time, Peter didn't pull out his sword, but he did pull Jesus aside. And he was like, Nah, this ain't gonna happen. That will never happen, Jesus. Jesus told him there, Get behind me, Satan. The pull. To subvert God's plan and pull Jesus from the cross is demonic in nature. Peter showed it with his words before, and now he shows it with his actions. His sword would supposedly save Jesus from death. Little does he know that it's actually Jesus' death that would save him, that would save us. Jesus tells Peter in verse 52 put down your sword because in essence to live by the sword is to die by the sword you'll never stop fighting the physical weapons won't advance God's will physical weapons won't accomplish God's plan weapons simply are not powerful enough for the task and neither are we i mean i think that's one of the reasons jesus tells peter to 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 put down his sword here because we possess such limited power limited physical power and limited political power like what are you really going to do peter you're going to take down the whole battalion of soldiers with your one little sword then what are you going to conquer all the roman forces that come next you have little power in your own strength and using your own resources to do anything that's really needed to change anything anyway i mean i think that's quite evident here in the kind of almost comical description of what peter actually accomplishes he cuts off a man's ear you ever wonder why the gospels describe that that little detail well i think it's to highlight just how inadequate Peter and we are to fight for Jesus in the way we think we should I mean certainly Peter was not aiming for the ear he was aiming to take off the man's head but Peter unskilled as he was I mean he's a fisherman not a soldier Even with all his zeal and all his boldness, all he can muster up is removing a man's ear as his greatest military accomplishment. Peter ain't made for battle. Friends, none of us are. Not this kind of battle. Our fighting for Jesus is not by the normal means that men use to fight. Again, Jesus in the previous scene had given Peter and us the weapon that we most need to wield to fight a far greater enemy than a soldier, sin and temptation by the use of prayer. But Peter laid down that weapon and went to sleep and picked up this one, thinking that this sword was strong enough to accomplish his will, to save Jesus's life but it was actually opposed to God's will. I mean, listen to the rest of Jesus' words as he continues in verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once immediately send more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. And Peter, if it was my father's will for my life to be spared, he would not use you and your puny ear-removing sword-wielding techniques, right? I mean, what in the world? He would send 12 legions of angels. To put that in perspective, one legion in the Roman army was 6,000 troops, Jesus says, all I got to do is call upon my heavenly father. And in an instant, I have access to 72,000 heavenly troops. Angels with power from God almighty to go save my beloved son. I mean, they would crush this little sad semblance of an army with their little clubs and swords. At Jesus's instant disposal was inconceivable power to stop things immediately. But how could God's will be done then? Or as Jesus says, how then could the scriptures be accomplished? The scriptures that promised the Messiah would come and suffer and die for the sins of his people. I mean, if you notice all through Matthew, I know it's been a while. If you read through Matthew's gospel, notice how Matthew over and over and over again, maybe read the the first couple chapters of Matthew this, this, this afternoon. And just circle how many times that kind of formula is given, right? All this was so that the scriptures could be fulfilled, right? Matthew is meaning to show that Jesus has come to accomplish his father's will, the plan that began in the garden when the first man sinned against God. And when God promised that he would send another one to come to crush Satan and sin's head and to deliver God's people, that plan was unfolding and Jesus was going to accomplish it. Jesus did accomplish it. He would not, not deliver in accomplishing God's plans. Peter sought to subvert God's plans for his son. Jesus sought to submit to his father's will, as was expressly conveyed all throughout the scriptures. He was going to do what he came to do. Remember, he told Peter, do what you came for. Well, Jesus was going to do what he came for the beginning of Matthew said he came to save his people from his sins and Jesus was going to do that to suffer and die for sinners like us he makes that clear to Peter and to the arresting party in verses 55 and 56 he questions them why they've come out with all these clubs and swords to arrest him as if they were arresting some thug some bandit, some insurrectionists that's a better word than, than that word robber there Are you coming out like I'm a terrorist or something? They've mistaken Jesus. As if the man that they've come to meet is going to wage some kind of political war and is going to fight viciously to gain control in Jerusalem. That's not what Jesus came for. That's the Messiah that the people of Israel wanted, but that's not the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Jesus says at the end of verse 55, I sat day by day in the temple teaching. And you didn't seize me then. So why now in secrecy with all this Calvary do you come to arrest me? I'll tell you why. Again, so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. As Jesus submits to God's will and fulfills every single scripture. I think we learn from this passage the kind of upside down ways of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not ruled or defended or extended by shows of physical or political power by people who seem fierce and who are boisterous. That's how earthly kingdoms are run, but not God's kingdom. So so while this passage here is not calling for pacifism, this passage is not calling for the abandonment of the use of weapons for self-defense. What it is banning is the attempt to use the weapons of this world to defend Jesus or to advance his gospel and his kingdom. That is not how Jesus' kingdom is advanced. Jesus says elsewhere in John chapter 18 verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. So that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's often the case that Christians are eager to fight. I mean, we've prized the spirit of Peter. <laughs> but often the ones so eager to fight are the ones fighting for the wrong thing. Because you can't establish a Christian nation through force or through voting, or by having a Christian monarch, or by showing all this strength. There is only one monarch, one king, his name is Jesus, and he reigns over all. But he shows us, this king with all power, shows us what his posture and what our posture must always be. Submission to God's will. For Jesus, that meant submitting to be arrested. And to suffer and be killed. He could have stopped it if he wanted to, but that was not the Father's will. So, friends, this should make us cautious of using the warfare of the world to supposedly fight for Jesus to advance Christianity, as if weapons or arguments or blog posts or political offices could save the day for Christianity. sometimes sometimes people say that right oh man you know the 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 way the world is the way this nation is you know Christianity is is failing and as if voting a certain way or or taking up arms and fighting a certain way is going to change that friends if God wanted to use force he would not use you like seriously do you think that your vote is that strong that your weapons are that strong. He has 72,000 angels that he can immediately dispose of and disperse to do his will. He don't need you. friends. Christianity is not advanced that way. No, Christianity is advanced. Christ's cause is advanced, not by killing others with weapons or by words, but Christianity is advanced by dying. Dying to ourselves and submitting to God's will. Jesus did that by actually dying for us. That was the father's plan. And Jesus did not seek to subvert that plan, but perfectly submitted to it. I wonder who you side with. Jesus and his submission to the father or the world or your own desires to subvert God's plan. So that you might seem bold or strong or willing to do anything for Christ. And yet the the Lord Jesus said, that's not what I'm about. I wonder how many of us need to hear Jesus' words this morning to put down your swords and instead pick up your cross. Deny yourself, even if it means suffering because the Lord uses suffering to advance his cause. The Lord used the suffering of his son to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The upside down ways of God's kingdom. Jesus is submissive where we are subversive. Second, we see in this passage that Jesus is courageous where we are cowards. Jesus is courageous where we are cowards. We see something of of cowardice at the very end of verse 56, where we read that all the disciples left Jesus and fled. It's what Jesus had predicted earlier in the chapter. Again, in fulfillment of scripture. When he quoted from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that if you strike the shepherd, all the sheep will scatter. We'll talk more about the cowardly fear, specifically of, of one of the disciples, Peter, in a while. But, but I want us to focus first on the cowardice that we see among the religious leaders in verses 57 through 68. In contrast to Jesus's courage. I mean, just look at the religious leaders' actions in this passage. The fact that they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus at night points to their weakness, points to their sin-filled spinelessness. They operated under a cloud of secrecy because they were afraid of the people. And if you flip back one page to the beginning of of chapter twenty-six and look at verses three through five, you'll see there that that they all gathered in the palace of of Caiaphas, the high priest, and these chief priests and elders plotted to arrest Jesus by stealth, by secret, and kill him. Why? Verse 5, because they didn't want to cause a raucous or an uproar from the crowds if they openly arrested Jesus during the feast of the Passover. They'd already planned to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him, Before they put that plan into action, there would be no fair trial. There would be no real justice. Uh, The time of his arrest and the the privacy of these little proceedings are proof of that. Uh, As is the process of this trial before the the Jewish leaders. Uh, I mean, look at verse 59. We read that the chief priests and the whole council, referring to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish governing party, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though. Many false witnesses came forward. I mean, you see how jacked up this entire process is. I mean, usually you have witnesses who make credible claims before you make an arrest here. There were no legitimate grounds to arrest Jesus, But they figured they'd grab him and worry about the pesky issue of finding some charges that stick or fabricating some charges that stick later. Up to this point, the most pressing reason they really wanted Jesus dead and gone was because they disliked him. They despised him. He threatened their authority and weakened their influence, and they wanted to wipe him out for it. That's a pretty cowardly way to respond to a perceived threat isn't it but that's why power in the hands of cowards is such a dangerous thing they can use their office and position to secretly settle scores Friends, that's why you should pray for and practice discernment on everything from voting on elected officials to far more important things like voting on church elders character matters do not install folks in office who seemingly will only use that office use that authority use that power to settle scores I mean how many of us have seen pastors wrongly use pulpits to to castigate others uh, to play get back with others that is not the way Jesus does things and not the way we should you don't want people who will power wickedly and unwisely seeking only to serve themselves instead of others. The chief priests and the elders, they sought false testimony against Jesus so they could put him to death. They were determined to kill him and were willing to wait and wait and wait until the right charge was found. Finally, or the text says, at last, two people came forward. Uh, two were needed because the law said that a testimony or accusation was not valid unless verified by two or three witnesses. Right? They were willing to wait all night until they found two that would be willing to have their testimonies matched to wrongly accuse Jesus. They wanted to keep the law in that way. <laughs> Crazy, right? Uh, they said these, t- these false witnesses said this man said I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in, in three days for the Jews, any talk of destroying the temple, the very place where God was present with his people would be a high crime. I mean, no matter that these two men actually got the words and the meaning of Jesus's words twisted, as people still do, they misquoted Jesus and took his words out of context, as people still do. I mean, where did they get this idea? Jesus said that he was going to Wreck this temple and then rebuild it. Well, they they got it from Jesus' earlier words. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus does say, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But those, it's subtle, that's different from saying, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Jesus didn't use those exact words because those exact words sound like what you do to a building Amen. you destroy and rebuild a building and when Jesus spoke of destroying the temple John two twenty one tells us that he was speaking about the temple of his body which through crucifixion would be destroyed but not rebuilt but rather resurrected three days later Amen. raised up for our justification and Jesus's words Had nothing to do with the Jews prized temple structure, but about something far greater. Himself, the person whom the temple pointed to, the the temple represented God's presence among his people. Jesus was God present among his people. He was Emmanuel, God with us. But the Jews did not receive him. They sought to get rid of him. And now finally, they have a reason they think is legitimate enough to officially produce the death warrant. They've already consigned him to. Caiaphas turns to Jesus in in verse 62. After this charge of threatening to destroy God's holy temple, he asks, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 63. But Jesus remained silence earlier in verses 47 through 56 when Judas came with a deceptive kiss Jesus didn't plead with his former friend to change his mind to reconsider what he was doing and when the soldiers and officers took hold of him Jesus didn't join in with Peter to try to resist the arrest there was courage shown in the face of arrest but now the stakes are raised He's not in front of a lowly hired turncoat like Judas. He's not in front of armed soldiers and officers with orders. He's in front of the people who paid Judas and who hired the officers and gave them their orders. He's in front of the chief priests and the elders, the Sanhedrin party, who have the power to actually condemn him to death. And yet, Jesus does not change his tune. He's not trembling with fear. His face is still fixed to go to the cross and do the father's will. And so even with the cowardly process in which the entire proceeding has taken place, and even with the false and untrue accusations that have been lobbed against him, Jesus does not protest at the injustice and at the falsehood. Jesus remains silent. Friends, sometimes the most courageous thing you can do is not to defend yourself, not to launch into tirades on Twitter to get people to rightly represent your views or so that you can rebut their every claim. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is to keep your lips closed. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us this, but given Jesus' pattern, I would not doubt that as Jesus was publicly silent to people, he was silently praying to his father and trusting himself and his defense to him. For that's often a good way to handle slander and false accusations. Give them over to the Lord. Psalm 35 verse one is a good prayer to pray in such instances. It's a prayer I prayed in, in such Instead of engaging in constant self-defense, pray Psalm 35, verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Jesus' silence astonishes and enrages the high priest Caiaphas. And he wants Jesus to respond and to confirm what these witnesses are saying. He wants Jesus to, as it were, hang himself with his own words. So he says at the end of verse 63, I adjure you. I take an oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Caiaphas raises the ante and instead of just talking about Jesus defiling the temple, he actually wants Jesus to seal his own fate by claiming that he, a lowly Galilean, was actually the son of God. Now, just pause here and just think of Jesus' options. Jesus right now can turn the temperature way down in the room if his goal was self-preservation. If he wanted to save himself, he could simply say that these witnesses misconstrued his words regarding the temple. What he actually was saying was something else. Or he could immediately deny claims of divinity. Even if he he thought they were true, he could keep those ideas to himself until a more opportune time, a safer time to, to let his real views out. Especially as he knew these claims would get him killed. Jesus could possibly maneuver himself out of this sticky situation with a little skill, with a little charm, with subdued speech. But then Jesus would be lying and would be as cowardly as these captives. Jesus instead speaks boldly. In response to Caiaphas' question regarding if he was the son of God, Jesus says in verse 64, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy. You know, one of the common objections to Christianity that you often hear is people say that Jesus never claimed to be God, right? Jesus not once claimed to be God. And they say that with such confidence because they never read in the Bible. Jesus directly say the three words, I am God. But that objection is largely due to people reading the Bible through modern day, Western lenses. We need to read the Bible on its own terms, through the lenses of first century Middle Eastern lenses. We need to read the Bible according to how the Bible presents itself. I mean, how did Jesus understand himself? Well, just listen to his words again in verse 64. Jesus sees himself as the Son of Man, who we said earlier is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. A divine figure who has all power and all glory and who will come on the clouds of heaven to establish his eternal kingdom. Jesus sees himself as the one who will from now on, after the events to happen in the next few days with his death and resurrection will take place. From now on, he will return to his rightful place. Seated, he says, at the right hand of power. It's a reference to the place that Psalm chapter 110 verse 1 says is reserved for the Lord. You know, Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. You need to listen to Jesus' own claims to understand what Jesus thinks about himself. And then listen to how other people in the first century in the same context as Jesus, how they understood Jesus' claims. These Jewish leaders would have known very well the famous passages of Daniel chapter seven and Psalm 110. They knew exactly what those passages referenced, And so notice the high priest's response in verse 65. He doesn't hear Jesus say, I, I, I'm the, the son of man. And, and, and the high priest doesn't respond by saying, oh no. He's just calling himself the son of man, the son of a a man or a woman. He's not saying he's the son of God. No, the high priest hears Jesus' words, and the high priest says, he has uttered blasphemy. Because Jesus, in using the title of son of man, and in placing himself at the privileged position at the right hand of God, was undeniably claiming to be God. Jesus was making it absolutely clear who he was, the son of God, the Messiah, the one who ruled from all eternity and who'd come to earth to save sinners. He'd do it by giving his own life, dying in our place for our sins that all who trust in him would be saved. But Jesus looked beyond his suffering to his exaltation. He would be raised and enthroned forevermore to rule forevermore and to return to rightly serve as judge. Even over those who's who here falsely judged him. Jesus said, you, you're going to see me again. But it won't be in shame and suffering. It will be with all power and authority. You're going to see the son of man, the same one you about to spit on. The same one you about to slap, the same one you about to crucify, you gonna see me again Amen. coming on the clouds of heaven with all rule and authority in my hand. Amen. It's a warning to both them and to us. Amen. Friends, be careful of how you treat Jesus. Be careful of your rejection of him now. He is coming back one day in judgment. So what you must now do is repent of your sins and turn to him in faith Trust that he is the one, the only one son of God who came to save sinners like us. Amen. Sadly, that's not what the religious leaders did. Jesus' claim did not convict their hearts and cause them to change. It only confirmed in their hearts that they needed to absolutely kill him. Amen. So they collectively decide in verse 66 that he deserves death. Amen. And they spit in his face. and They struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us if you are the Christ, that is. Who is it that struck you? Such cowards. To beat and humiliate a man already in custody. But such courage by Jesus. To endure it all and soon even more. For us. His bold courage. Claims to be king led him to be despised and rejected, and even by those closest to him. Amen. Our passage ends with a picture of Peter in his own sort of trial. Verses 69 through 75 place Peter in the courtyard of Caiaphas's palace when people start questioning him. In verse 69, a servant girl came up to him and said, Hey, you you also was with Jesus the Galilean but Peter denied it I don't know what you mean verse 71 another servant girl saw him and said this man was with Jesus of Nazareth Amen. again Peter denied it I don't know the man verse 73 bystanders come and say certainly you're one of them you sound just like you're a Galilean again Peter invokes a curse and swears I Do not know the man. Then the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered Jesus' earlier prediction that before the rooster crowed, he would deny him three times, and Peter went out and and wept. Striking here in these verses is the contrast with the previous scene. I mean, there was Jesus standing in front of the high priest and the Sanhedrin rulers, people with real power and real prestige with authority to sentence him to death. And yet there was Jesus standing firm in their face, unafraid, courageous, unwilling to deny who he was. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Son of God, even if that means you're going to kill me. And he was Peter, the one who previously claimed to stand with Jesus to the end, to fight to the death for Jesus who was seemingly willing to do it when, when they came to arrest Jesus. But now here Peter is before mere servant girls. You see that in the passage? Right? They would have been no older than 14 years old. They have no power or authority to do anything. And yet here's bold Peter cowering under their questions. Amen. Weren't you with him? Aren't you one of his disciples? Jesus who I don't know him at all I swear it. in the previous passage Jesus had three times to, to speak up and to turn down the temperature to take the pressure off himself he had three times to seek to save himself when the false accusations came from the two witnesses he didn't respond when the high priest asked if he had no answer to make to the charges He remained silent. When the high priest asked if he was the Christ, the son of God, Jesus did not back down or deny, but fully affirmed who he was. But here Peter faces three questions, three tests of faith, and he fails every single one of them. To each question of his association and his allegiance to Jesus, he denies them. Three times, as Jesus said, would happen. His prideful boasting of never falling away falls directly to the ground. And when the rooster crows, he remembers Jesus' words and he weeps. Friends, I wonder if you can't relate to to Peter. I can't. I mean, how many times have I cowered under pressure to deny the Lord? Maybe not outright reject him. Right? But, but, but just not be as bold or open in confessing my allegiance to him for, for fear of what others might think about me, for, for fear of repercussions on the job, for fear of losing friends, for, for fear of, of losing some influence. How often have I cowered in the face of temptations to sin and chosen allegiance to my flesh over allegiance to Jesus? When I'm faced with some sinful temptation, I, I, I along with Peter, often say, I don't know him seeking to serve myself i trust i'm not the only one but none of us should read this passage and readily identify ourselves with jesus we've all got more judas and the religious leaders and the peter in us than we know none of us have lived the life of fidelity and faithfulness to God in the face of trials that we ought to. But praise God that Jesus is better than us. That he has done what we have not done. He has been courageous when we have been cowardly and part of his courage was going to the cross to die for the sin of our cowardice so that we might be delivered, so that we might be forgiven. And he does forgive all those who turn from their sin and trust in him. Peter wept here, but they weren't crocodile tears. They spoke of a real repentance that Peter would later demonstrate and that Jesus would later restore him for. Reading the Gospel of John, when Jesus is resurrected and returns to his disciples. He asked Peter three questions. This time, Peter does not deny his Lord. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the same Peter who three times before Jesus' death denied him and denied him and denied him. This next time when he sees the risen, Jesus says, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And Jesus doesn't say, well, prove it by doing all this. No, Jesus embraces him. He restores him. He takes, that's right, what a savior, David. He takes sinners, regardless of how horrible we've treated him. How often we've denied him. And he says, you trust in me and I will forgive everything. And not only will he forgive you, he'll use you. This same Peter who denied Jesus so often to save his life is the same Peter who gave his life to spread the gospel of Jesus. Tradition, tra- uh, tradition tells us that this same Peter who was scared in front of servant girls would testify of Jesus and would go to the cross and would say, I'm not willing to be crucified like my Lord. Turn me upside down and crucify me. You don't get that kind of boldness overnight. You get that kind of boldness from the Lord who loves us and who cares for us and who restores us. That's why Jesus was willing to die. To have us for himself. That we might forever live with and live for him. Jesus courageously placed his hands or his life into the hands of sinners. To save sinners like us. How should we respond? By placing our lives in the hands of a Savior who lived and died and rose again to save you and to save me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ who is everything that we should have been and more. Who submits to your perfect. Where we've rebelled against it. Who is courageous to stand up as the true man of God. But we, men and women of the Lord, have often failed and been cowards. We thank you that Jesus not only lived for us, but died for us. That he might plunge our sins into the depth of the sea, that you might remember them no more. Oh, Lord, grant us joy in Jesus, boldness to live for him, and to testify of him. Let me pray that any who don't know the Lord Jesus would know him now, Lord. Soften hearts. Draw people to Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen.